A radical look at Scottish history with Stuart McHardy. Part 5. The Coming of Christianity. Nowadays it is generally accepted that the first of the Christian missionaries to come to Scotland was Ninian, who set the founder of the church at Whithorn on the Solway Firth, maybe as early as the first half of the 5th century. Before the Roman troops withdrew in the early years of the 5th century, Christianity had become the official religion of the empire, a process implemented by the Roman Emperor Constantine a century before, and so there may well have been some Christian priests along the border defined by Hadrian's Wall, and it could have been that some had ventured north. We're reliant for the story of Ninian on material from England, and there is some doubt that he went much further north than the Fourth Clyde Line. Many commentators have made much of the statement that he was active amongst the southern Picts, but as we know the terms Caledonian and Pict were almost interchangeable for Roman writers, it is possible that by the southern Picts they meant the people south of the Fourth Clyde Line. In this early period the picture is pretty cloudy and there is little evidence to show how effective Ninian was in successfully spreading Christianity amongst the natives. So most of our historians have been happy to credit the later Columba with converting the Scots and Picts. But there are a few problems with this. He is said to have arrived in the west of Scotland around 563 and we'll look at what brought him here later. But there are traditions of other saints active not in the west, but in the northeast around Aberdeenshire, in the same period as Columba. The names that have survived are Fergus, Drost, and Macher, and Ternan. And though there are churches probably dedicated to them in later years, none of them achieved the fame of Columba. And this is where history is perhaps at its least trustworthy. The loyalty of Christian scribes was to their church and their God, and one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that as the Roman church became ever more centralised, policy was dictated from Rome. The structure of the Roman Christian church was laid on the already established foundations of the Roman Empire, the administrative areas of one following the other. Of course, we rely for much of our understanding of early Christian church in Scotland on the work of Bede, whose history of the English church and people was written in Northumbria in the late 7th century, long after the time of Columba, never mind Ninian. But it was also written after the Synod of Whitby in 664, which may well be significant. When it comes to Columba, often presented as the dove of the church, most Scots during the centuries have been happy to accept the picture painted of him by Adamnan, a man who, like Columba, was an abbot of Iona but whose life of the saint did not appear till around the year 700. The lives of saints were known as hagiographies, a word that has become synonymous with what is in effect propaganda, and as such need to be treated with extreme caution. Adamlin goes to great lengths to describe how humble, dedicated and peaceful his predecessor had been, and in standard fashion attributes many miracles to him, including the saving of one of his followers from the threat of being consumed by a monster in Loch Ness. No one would question the need to treat such material with care. Such works were written to advance saints' reputations and to aid in the furtherance of the Christian religion. However, so when we compare Adamnan's life of Columba with another from Ireland, things truly become 
cloudy. Back in those times there was no printing, and all books had to be copied by hand. While still in Ireland, Columba had borrowed a copy of the Bible from another priest, Finton. Before returning it, he had a copy made. He did not ask for permission to copy it, and Finton took him to an ecclesiastic court to have the copy returned. The court found in Finton's favour, but Columba refused to comply. Matters swiftly got out of hand. The early Christian institutions in Ireland, as in much of Britain, were a series of monasteries with groups of churches attached, each led by their own abbot. Bishops in this setup were minor functionaries, and each monastery was effectively independent and allied to specific clans or kin groups. As the dispute escalated, the churchmen turned for support to their own kin groups, and this eventually led to the Battle of Caldremni, where, according to some reports, as many as 3,000 lives were lost. Whether this figure is accurate or not, after the battle, all of the Irish churches got together and Columba was expelled from Ireland. None of this quite matches the picture of the patron saint of Scotland, which was created as a result of deliberate propaganda on the part of the church. In 664, a great church meeting of churchmen of Synod was called at Whitby in Northumbria by Bishop Wilfred, a devout follower of the hierarchical Roman church. Many historians have concentrated on two of the matters to be discussed at this meeting, the date of Easter and what hairstyle or tonsure monks would wear. The British churches, under their individual abbots, had for a long time been following a particular methodology for calculating the date of Easter, which was substantively different from the process used by the church based in Rome. This had led to anomalous situations where supposedly the king of Northumbria was celebrating Easter at a different date from his wife. The other topic, the tonsure or monkish haircut, was on the surface simply a matter of stylistic difference. The Roman followers shaved the crown of the head, but the British churchmen shaved the front of the head from ear to ear. This shaven brow has repeatedly been said to have been originally used by Druids, but the evidence for that is non-existent. At the Synod, the decision was made to follow the lead of Rome, and Columbus' biographer Adamman, as abbot of Iona, agreed. This was no small thing. With the loyalty of all of the church in these islands now given to Rome, there were inevitable consequences. The earlier British form, known in Ireland as Muntiers, or Brotherhoods of the Land, held their lands as part of local society. Now, over time, that land would become the property of the church, led from Rome. The independent, small-scale local organisation of the British Church began to fade away, though some groups, known as Caldees, continued to have a parallel existence for several centuries in major churches. Now, it's no coincidence that the Synod took place in Northumbria, an embryonic nation-state that was set on the conquest of its neighbours. If you want to develop a centralised state-like structure, it's handy to have a bunch of monks who are not only literate and numerate, understand the processes of hierarchical power structures. As the power of the centralised church grew, there was a need for good stories to tell, and in the person of Columba, it appeared that the church saw great potential. He effectively became the face of the church in Scotland, and there was no need to include the unfortunate events of his earlier life in Ireland. I should make it clear that I am a member of no religion and have no belief in any god. And in this being the case, I found it remarkable 
that after the Protestant Reformation in Scotland in the late 16th century, some Presbyterian ministers claimed that they were in fact merely reinstituting the Columban or pre-Catholic and thus true religion. It is, however, just another aspect of how religion, like politics, uses propaganda. Even when such behaviour is driven by motives that its proponents believe totally pure. History, driven by religious fervour, has no need to be logical, only believable for the faithful. Given my scepticism towards all matters of religion, it is perhaps not surprising that I suspect the story given us by Bede, that the Scots arrived in Argyll just a few generations before Columba, followed on to them, a little too convenient. The influence on the West led to the nation of Arwa being called Scotland is just one potential example of the results of the story of the Scottish church and people being tailored to fit an agenda developed elsewhere. Next time we will look at the birth of Scotland. Further information and reading can be found at www.stuartmchandy.com wordpress.com